reason that I like for everyone to be standing is so that it's not so obvious how hard it is sometimes to get up here. Our text this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, the 27th division, and beginning there with verse 33. They were come unto the place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull. They gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. Did you notice that passage? They came to the place called Golgotha. They gave him vinegar mingled with gall. They crucified him. They parted his garments. They watched him there. Actually, if you read those verses in Matthew's text and count it, the word they is used six times just in those four verses. In the entire 27th chapter, depending on which translation you're reading from, the word they is used somewhere around 30 times in Matthew chapter 27. The words and the word they speaks of those who were present at the crucifixion of Jesus. Because you see, on that fateful day when my Lord died on Golgotha's hill, there were three groups of people that were present. It was the day that the sun stood still. It was the day that the veil of the temple was rent in twain. The day that Jesus was crucified along with those three groups of people that were present that day, there were three crosses there. I want us to look at both of those things this morning. You see, as they watched Him there, the crowd of sympathy was present. And that's the very first crowd we see as they watched Jesus that day. That crowd of sympathy, those are the ones that are standing by with tears in their eyes. Listen. You can hear them sobbing. If you listen carefully, you can even hear some of them saying, Why? Why did He have to die? Why are they doing it? Why are they killing Jesus? What did Jesus do to them? Who has Jesus hurt and not helped? What wrong has Jesus done? You see, that's the way it is with the sympathetic crowd. They always stand by. And they always shed their tears. On that day that Jesus died on Calvary's tree, 
That sympathetic crowd stood there and they shed their tears. But that's all they did. They did not try to defend Jesus. They didn't cry to Pilate and say, Release Jesus and kill Barabbas. They just stood there and they cried. Two thousand years later, that sympathetic crowd is still around. That sympathetic crowd today stands around and watches as the servants of God labor in the harvest of souls. They sometimes talk about how terrible things are. They talk about how they're all in favor of the Word of God. But they don't lift a finger to help. They just stand by and they cry. They're not particularly dependable. They're not particularly faithful. But they're sympathetic. And then there's the crowd of antipathy. That group of people that watched Him that day, that crowd of antipathy, those are the ones that are in total opposition to Jesus and His ministry. They're the ones that in that mob shouted to Pilate, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! That was the group that wanted Jesus to die because He was a threat to them. His teachings were directly opposed to their lifestyle and the things they wanted to do. He was a threat to them. He was a threat to expose their crooked kind of life, and they hated Him. This crowd of antipathy, they hated Jesus so much, they rejoiced as they watched Jesus die that day, and they watched Him writhe in pain and agony. That group's around today too, folks. Those are the people that want to burn all the Bibles and close the door to every church in the country. Those are the people that want to keep the gospel off the airwaves, and they're the people that want to keep prayer out of the classroom. Those are the people that hate Christianity, persecute Christianity even in our country in our day and time, and they persecute it and hate it so much that they want to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. Let me give you a recent example or two of anti-Christian bigotry in our own day and time. The Arizona Supreme Court, just in the last few days, issued an ethics ruling and says that judges in Arizona who perform marriage ceremonies for men and women must also perform ceremonies for men and men and women and women. Their only option other than performing same-sex marriages, is to not perform any marriage ceremonies whatsoever. It's been in the last few days. State Senator Joseph Silk of Oklahoma introduced a bill to allow business owners the freedom to follow their religious convictions. So that a florist or a baker 
cannot be put out of business and cannot be sued because they refuse to serve a same-sex couple that wants to get married. So you can't have a situation like what's going on in the state of Washington right now where the Washington Attorney General is trying to put an elderly lady in a, with a floral shop out of business because it violated her convictions to provide flowers for two women that wanted to get married. Senator Silk is enduring vile and vulgar comments from homosexuals, and he's even had threats against his family because he supports religious freedom. I'm not through. In a recent speech, the Vice President of the United States of America publicly took the name of Jesus Christ in vain as he blasted and referred to those who support biblical marriage as bigots. He took the name of Jesus Christ in vain and he, re- and he blasted those he called biblical marriage bigots. That would be me. That would be those of us who still believe the Bible meant what it said. When it referred to men with men and women with men, women as being sinful. The courts can change their mind. Politicians can change their mind. People can change their mind. But God's Word has not been revised. And it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the crowd of antipathy. Now, there's one thing you can say about this group. You know where they stand. There's no masking what they are. There's no masking what they want to do. Like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, they want to take God out of not only their life, but they want to take God out of my life and yours too. And then there was that crowd of apathy that was present that day when Jesus died. Quite honestly, folks, they're the worst of the three groups. Because you see, apathy means total unconcern. Apathy means they just don't care. Apathy means no matter what's going on, they don't care in the least bit. Their motto and their way of life is whatever. They're the group that was part of the they that day that they just wanted to watch. And we have that group around today also. They're driving by this morning. They'll drive by the church building. They'll never bat an eye in the direction of the building. And if they do, they'll look and say, well, that's nice. But never come to services. They never read a Bible. They never study God's Word. God doesn't matter. They're just totally unconcerned. As Jesus hung there that day on that cross, 
as He was bleeding and as He died, all three of those groups of people were present. And it says they watched Him there and there were three crosses there that day. There was the cross of rejection. It was on that cross that a man died in sin. This man had lived as a robber. He had lived as a robber. He had lived as an insurrectionist. And he died as a robber. And he died as an insurrectionist. He had lived in rebellion against both God and man. As he hung there and paid the penalty for his crimes, he remained bitter and he remained impenitent until the very end. The agonizing torture of death. It brought absolutely no softening to his heart. On his lips there was no word of regret. On his cheeks there were no tears of repentance. This man's dying hour was characterized by abuse and railing and bitterness. And among the objects of this man's bitterness was Jesus Himself. Luke records that He said in Luke 23 and 39, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Oh, He wanted salvation from the cross. It was painful. It was agonizing. But He wanted salvation on His own terms. That characterizes a lot of folks even now. But you see, Jesus didn't promise to save us from the cross. Jesus promised to save us through the cross. And there was also that day the cross of reception. It was on that cross, on the other side of Jesus, that a man died to sin. He too had been a robber and an insurrectionist and a revolutionary. And he was dying for his crimes. But he had come to himself and he was pleading for mercy. And it's possible for the very first time in his life he was seeing things in their true light. At any rate, he was thinking straight as he hung there that day on the cross. He admitted the justice of his own suffering and he admitted the justice of his own death. And he called on Jesus for mercy, but he didn't make any demands. And he also expressed no doubts concerning Jesus. But yet in his humble cry of faith, Jesus responded and that man received an infinitely precious promise. Jesus says today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then as you see the cross of rejection and the cross of penitence, on that central cross that day, you see the cross of love. On one cross, a man died in sin. On another cross, a man died to sin. But on that cross of love, a man died for sin. Mine. Yours. Paul would write Romans 5 and verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. It was not the nails that day that held Jesus to that wooden cross. It was love. It was love that kept Jesus on that altar of wood the day they crucified Him. When I look at that cross, when I realize it was love that held Jesus there, almost enough to make us ashamed to be part of the human race. It ought to be enough to make us ashamed not only of our own sins, but the sins of the human race. Because of His love for us. Let's personalize it. Because of His love for me, Jesus died. In a very real sense, You and I spit on Him that day. We pressed the crown of thorns on His head that day. We nailed Him to the cross. But God is able to make the wrath of man praise Him. And God is able to make of the cross the means of our salvation. Jesus went to the cross that day, and they watched Him there. And it was His love for me and for you that caused Him to go to that cross. Amidst all the hate that day, amidst all the hatred that was there on that day of the cross, there was a greater amount of love. Jesus' mother was there. And then there are other women that were there at the foot of the cross that day. John, the beloved disciple, was there. Peter was probably there, but he was probably watching from some place of safety, hiding. Those that Jesus had healed, those that He fed, they were there. The love of Jesus knew no bounds. story is told of a group of schoolboys some years ago. It was in a rural area during the throes of the Great Depression. A new teacher had come to the school. A young man who had just graduated from college, a fine Christian man. Upon starting his first day of school, He told the class that in order to have a good school, they had to be rules that they followed. And he told them he wanted them to help him make up the rules for the school. And with that said, he began to ask for suggestions for the school rules. One student shouted out, no stealing. Another one said, no cussing. Another one said, no lying. After a few minutes, there were ten rules written on the chalkboard. teacher said, now, class, we have a set of rules. But for a rule to have meaning, there has to be a penalty for those that break them. That was when one of the students said, ten licks across the back without a coat on. 
teacher asked, are you sure that's what you want? That's a pretty hard punishment. Almost as one, that class answered, that's what they wanted. So they had their rules. And they had their punishment. It was only about a week that went by when the class bully, a boy called Big Jim, missed his lunch. Somebody had taken Big Jim's lunch. So a search was on to find the thief. After a little while, they questioned a little skinny, poor boy named Johnny. And Johnny confessed to the teacher he had taken Big Jim's lunch. He said, I hadn't had anything to eat in three days. His mother was a widow. She was doing her best to provide for four children. And often there was little to eat. The teacher knew the rules had to be followed. See, he, so he called that little skinny boy, Johnny, to the front of the class and told Johnny that he was involved in making the rules and he was involved in setting the penalty for those that broke the rules. And he said, Johnny, you've got to take your coat off now. Please don't take me, make me take my coat off, Johnny cried. Teacher, you lick me all you want, but please, please don't make me take off my coat. Teacher said, Johnny, you helped make the rules and the punishment. And now you, just like any other member of the class, you've got to obey the rules. Take off your coat. That little skinny boy was shaking all over, but he took his coat off. To the surprise of the teacher and the rest of the class, the only thing he had on under that shirt was a that coat was a ragged t-shirt. A shirt that was worn thin and was barely more than a rag. That teacher looked at him in sympathy. And he thought to himself, how can I beat this poor child? How can I whip and punish this poor child with ten licks across his back? It was then that Big Jim stepped up the boy that had had his lunch stolen. He said, Teacher, can someone take the place of another for punishment? The teacher said, Yes. There's a precedent in the Bible that someone can be a substitute for another. Big Jim walked to the front of the room and he took his coat off. He looked at the teacher and said, I'll take his licking. So the teacher started whipping Big Jim. And as the teacher brought the rod across his back the fourth time, he heard the rod break. And he noticed that that whole class's eyes were wet with tears. Through tears of his own, he looked down at Big Jim. And he looked at Johnny, that little frail boy with the ragged T-shirt. And Johnny had put his arms around Big Jim's neck. And he said, Big Jim, thank you for taking my licking for me. I'll remember this the rest of my life.
Does that story touch your heart in any way? Then why in the name of Israel's God? Does the story of the spotless, immaculate Son of God hanging on a rough-hewn cross on Calvary's hill not touch our heart in just the same way? Why does not the story of Jesus Christ hanging there touch us enough for us to want to live the kind of life Jesus would have us live? Can that cross on Calvary's hill touch our hearts enough for us to be obedient to Jesus and live His kind of life? It's His invitation as we stand.